Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about reality dating shows like The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy. We can't live with these shows and we can't live without them, but we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating. Welcome to Love to See It, a podcast about the accelerated velocity of terminological inexactitude. That's just our fancy way of saying that we're a couple of admitted whores who love to gossip about teen rom-coms, like Easy A. Emma, there is a higher power that will judge you for your indecency. Ah, yes, I am familiar with Tom Cruise. He's always watching. Here to talk to us about Easy A, Emma Stone, Penn Badgley, and Amanda Bynes is movie critic Amy Nicholson. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, everybody. I actually laughed at that line because I wrote a book on Tom Cruise. I was like, oh, yeah, it's a dark period to be Tom Cruise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. The things you could certainly tell us about Tom Cruise, I'm not even sure I want to know. So, Amy, thank you for, for joining us for this movie. We're really excited to talk Easy A. But let's start a little broader. We wanted to know what your relationship to rom-coms and romantic movies is and has been. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love them, but I think only recently have I been able to go back and rewatch them without that kind of, I've never been in love resentment. Do you know what I mean? Where like, Mm. you are a Mm -hmm. teenager, you're watching rom-coms, and Emma Stone is winding up with like Woodchuck Todd, who seems like an angel, and I don't have a Woodchuck Todd in my life. And I'm like, I like this movie, but I hate this movie. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? And so I feel You're like just I, too jealous. I was too jealous. So I watched a lot of movies sort of with one foot out. And now that I'm, you know, very happy, I adore my boyfriend. I've been together for zillions of years. He cries at the notebook, angel of a human being. Oh, I'm so <laughs> proud of him. Oh, I love that. your boyfriend too. <laughs> he sounds wonderful. He sounds a lot like Woodchuck Todd. He is a lot like Woodchuck. He actually is a lot like, oh, God. (laughs) Very similar. Um, But yeah, so I I adore them. I adore them. And I find myself as a film critic getting really defensive of of romantic comedies. Because as a film critic, I've been a film critic for a pretty long time. 
I've seen arcs in the way critics respond to film to film romantic comedies where I would say earlier on in my career, it was really hard out there to be a romantic comedy. You know, Easy A, for example, got like 29 Rottens on Rotten Tomatoes and 28 of them were from men and men just being like, these kind of movies are dumb. These kind of movies are derivative. Just hating an entire genre. And I feel like that's shifting, but yeah. Every, I feel like every movie we've covered, there's always a male critic who's like, the plot is so predictable. <laughs> and we're like, that's the genre. Yeah. That's the whole genre. That's why we like these movies. Right? Oh, and by the yeah. way, the Avengers are going to save the world. So what? Yeah. That's, that's how this works. <laughs> it's all about how you get there. Exactly. I, I, yeah, there was, it was a really dark time. I feel like in the the aughts, it was like the only way to make a rom-com was to have it be really misogynistic or it's actually like about and for men because that made it interesting and cool. And so a movie like Easy A that is about a, a girl and that is about a, a girl's experiences of romance and sex is like was sort of an outlier I feel like in 2010 it was so why did you pick this movie from our list of teen rom-coms well part of why I picked it is because I feel like we've talked about the John Hughes movies a lot you know and there's so much to say about them but this movie comes at a part where I feel like it's commenting on John Hughes but also improving on John Hughes a little bit and I want to be. I want to give this movie its flowers. I guess is where I'm coming from because I've seen Clueless get cycled back into the zeitgeist, Iggy Azalea dressing up as 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 um, a share, and watching this movie, I think it stands shoulder to shoulder with Clueless, and it's been slightly forgotten. So I think it's time to start the re-evolution of Easy A. It's about on that Jennifer's body. Hey, let's go back. And wasn't this movie a masterpiece cycle? And so that is why I specifically picked this one. I'm so excited. I'm so glad to you did. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I saw this movie in theaters and had not watched it much since. So it was a real treat to get to dive back into it. Let's talk about a little background on this film. Easy A came out September 17th, 2010. It was directed by Will Gluck, who went on to write and direct Friends with Benefits, the Mila Kunis. Justin Timberlake version of the same movie that Natalie Portman and Ashton Kutcher also made in the same year. Which is funny because <laughs> Malakunas and Ashton Kutcher were like the characters exactly. in both of those movies, as it turned out. I know. I believe they've been asked about that <laughs> many times because it's just so good. Um, and the screenplay for Easy A was written by Burt V. Royal, who had previously written the Broadway play Dog Sees God. And like I was saying before, 2010 was not a, like a high point for the rom-com genre. They were really no. on their way out. Um, and so Easy A for, for people like me, I was just graduating college. I was in my, my rom-com era where I was like, I live alone now. I don't live with two <laughs> brothers and my dad anymore. I can watch a rom-com whenever I want. And so a movie like Easy A really stood out and it made a big impression on the market. It was smart. It was funny. It starred Emma Stone, who was like the queen of teen comedies at the time. And just three years after Superbad, which was her breakout role, I believe. It was not a big budget movie. It was an $8 million movie. It out-earned in its first weekend. So bet on rom-coms, people. And ultimately grossed more than $75, more than $75 million worldwide. 
75 whole dollars. <laughs> $75. Can you believe it? I'd take that. You can you can buy a lot with $75. Um and it was it was critically well received by many critics, though it was not, as you referenced, universally applauded. I think Emma Stone's performance came in for a lot of a lot of praise. Um, but it was mixed. I think, as you said, there was still a lot of discomfort with taking rom-coms like on their own terms at that time. Yeah, and I think that also explains why most of the praise did center around Emma Stone as this like rising talent. And I loved the comparison, Amy, that you made to Clueless because New York Times critic Stephen Holden wrote at the time that Easy A commands attention for the irresistible presence of Emma Stone playing a good girl who pretends to be bad. Her performance is the best of its type since Alicia Silverstone's star turn several high school generations ago in Amy Heckerling's 1995 hit Clueless. So I think that's clearly... <laughs> <laughs> a resonance there. Well, yeah. What popped out to me is that Roger Ebert, too, was like, she is a star. Emma Stone is a star. And when Roger Ebert does that, he doesn't do it that often, but when he does it, he's he's always been right. He actually did that with Tom Cruise and Risky Business, which everybody just reviewed as like, oh, it's a teen movie. Who really cares? And he was like, that kid is actually going to be a great actor. And he was the only one who called it. So Roger Ebert, wow. star of approval, always matters. <laughs> I love that. Before we get into the plot, I also just want to talk about the vibe of this movie. Because to me, I turned on this movie and yeah, I like Claire had just gotten out of college. I was living in in New York, kind of feeling like an adult for the first time. I remember seeing it in theaters. And this movie just feels like 2010. I mean, my God, the skinny jeans, the long chain necklaces, the lingerie inspired tank tops that are actually tunics because you wear them pulled over your jeans all the way down to the <laughs> mid thigh. Like we were all so uncomfortable ooh. with the low rise jeans, but we hadn't figured out another way of dealing with it yet. So we were just like, yeah, we were like, we, we won't be tucking in. No, we're just going to be looking lumpy. Even the poor actresses <laughs> yeah. in the background at the parties are going to be looking like they have sound packs in their waistbands. Like, why did we let ourselves do that? I hated low rise jeans yeah. and I'm so mad that Gen Z is bringing them back. I know. I, I'm just hoping that the, the way that fashion markets work has changed enough that they will continue making high-rise jeans for me <laughs> exactly. specifically, which it doesn't always seem to be the case. But yeah, it's, I mean, the side bangs also. I Aggressive side bangs. I saw Emma Stone's side bangs and I was like, I had those also. And it was a terrible <laughs> look for me, but it was the way. It was the truth. We all had side bangs. <laughs> Laundry inspired tank tops. I'm wearing one right now in honor of this movie because they are also back. They are. Also, the corset tops are back. And she, those are a huge marker <laughs> I of think Emma Stone's are actually just sartorial transition. They are just corsets. Corset now, now there are non-lingerie corsets. So what we're saying is we can take the best parts of this movie and bring them into the future. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to go deep into my drawers and pull out the box I have somewhere of tangled chain necklaces that go down to my navel. <laughs> it's time. Oh, we can't oh, forget my, about like, the random scarves. Oh, yeah. Oh, and the tiny vests. <laughs> yeah. Especially those like thin scarves that are made of something sort of weirdly shiny. And yeah. it's like, what is this for? It doesn't keep you warm. It's not cute. Like, mm -hmm. what are we even doing here? You're in a skinny tank so top, but oh no, my like, just my collarbones are really, really chilly. Just my collarbone, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Won't someone think of the collarbones? <laughs> like, you lose so much heat through there. 
<laughs> so so that that sort of sets us in a place in time very clearly, which is one of the joys of a teen rom-com. And I think we should get into the plot a little bit because this movie, there's a lot going on. So Olive Pendergast, played by Emma Stone, is a 17-year-old high school senior and self-described invisible girl in Ojai, California. The movie begins with her speaking directly into her webcam. It is a confessional frame. She says, the rumors of my promiscuity have been greatly exaggerated. Let the record show that I, Olive Pendergast, being of sound mind and below average breast size, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, starting now. Her name actually is like a decade ahead of trends. I think Olive is back now for baby girls. I was absolutely was not, thinking that. Yeah. Olive is trendy now. Yeah, they they saw it coming. Did you catch her parents' Or names, is it just because... Though? Her parents are Rosemary what? and Dill. So there's this whole thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> and then for some reason, her adopted brother is Chip. But like, I guess that's a food. Well, you can, you can, you can put Rosemary and Dill on a chip. So. Hey, delicious. So we then flash back to earlier in the year. Olive is with her best friend, Rhiannon Abernathy, played by Ali Machalka. Talk about blast from the past. She ends up lying to, to Rhiannon about a date that she has that weekend because she doesn't want to go camping with Rhiannon and her super crunchy, weird family. And instead, she spends the weekend in her own room lip-syncing with increasing enthusiasm to a greeting card that plays Natasha Bedingfield's Pocket Full of Sunshine. Claire and I were both <laughs> saying that this is the scene that stuck with us from this movie. Yeah. This scene the in the scene beginning of the movie that is, that is not germane to the plot at all, but it is, like, iconic. <laughs> and so relatable. I've talked myself into liking so many awful trash songs. And that that is how a song like Pocket Full of Sunshine <laughs> works. Yeah. Like you it doesn't have to be appealing the first time you listen to. You just get keep hearing it through the radio and suddenly you're buying Natasha Bedingfield concert tickets. <laughs> when Rhiannon asks Olive about her date that week in the in the school bathroom, Olive accidentally plays up the romance of the date. No, weekend that she spent with her brother's college friend, George, so much that Rhiannon assumes that Olive had sex with George and lost her virginity. She's so insistent about this that Olive ends up being like, rather than fight her on this, I'm just going to play along. I'll make up this detailed story of losing my virginity. And it's an overheard by school morality crusader Marianne, played by Amanda Bynes, who was in a, ba- oh. in a bathroom stall the whole time. And who takes the liberty of just, like, letting everyone know that Olive has been deflowered. So now Olive has a bit of a reputation. And it proves to be a mixed blessing at first. She likes that people are paying attention to her, which is always nice. But then in English class, when they're discussing the Scarlet Letter, Marianne's sidekick Nina calls her a tramp. Olive lashes back and calls her a twat. And she ends up getting detention. So now she's in the cascade of, you know, behavioral interventions, right? Like, she's been marked a bad girl, and now she has detention. It happens so fast. (laughs) She also is joined in detention with Brandon, an old friend who is gay, and he keeps getting in trouble for defending himself from homophobic bullies. And she ends up suggesting that he should do what she did and just, like, lie about his sexual history to make high school more tolerable. And he's, like, intriguing, intriguing thought. 
So he comes to her with a proposal that she be his beard. And he ends up convincing her to at least let him pretend that he has slept with her by giving this heart-wrenching speech about how terrible and torturous high school is for him. And she takes pity and she's like, okay, I will pretend to have sex with you as a good deed. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the rest of the plot of Easy A. Can you keep up? I like love it. Okay, so you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next. If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about is Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From the day you get engaged and search for the venue to the day you send out your save the dates, make your registry, and even taste your cake. Zola has literally everything you need to make the whole process super easy and actually even enjoyable. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go or, you know, from your couch, which is certainly how, uh, if I was planning a wedding, I would definitely want to do it as loungily as possible. <laughs> so important. I also just know myself. I I know that planning any kind of event, like even a birthday party, can get very stressful. And so it's been really cool to see friends use Zola. It really seems to make everything a lot less stressful. And as a frequent wedding attender. I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola. Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A.com. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while or even not that long knows that we love Article. I mean, honestly, I'm looking around my home right now. Coffee tables from Article, that lovely chair out on my deck, Article, our big console, Article, I'm my bed frame, Article. This is an Article household. It is. And it's, I mean, it was an inspiration to me. We finally got our first Article piece of furniture recently, our new couch. And my husband and I are both constantly just like, how did we live before this couch? This is such an improvement over what we had before. It's so comfortable. It just seems to get more comfortable every day. I mean, it's the couch you dream of. And the reason that we have both been able to find ideal furniture on Article is because Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandi, and boho designs makes furniture shopping simple. And their team of designers are all about finding that perfect balance between style, quality, and price because we all want the best of all of those three things united in one piece of furniture, right? Plus, they're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and, you know, looks good doing it. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash LTSI, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash LTSI for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list, as they should, because it's very important. If that's you, then make this year the year you finally check it off your list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Wow, that is really fast. Their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning link. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I personally used Babbel before I headed off to Paris for three weeks, and it was so helpful just kind of giving me back the basic understanding of French, allowing me to interact with people in restaurants, in shops, and, you know, just not make a total fool of myself when in a foreign country. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash LTSI. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash LTSI. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash LTSI. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we are back, and it's time for Olive and Brandon to go to Melody Bostick's Melody Bostick. party. Her rager. And they make a huge show of drunkenly retiring to her bedroom to have very loud and very unconvincing fake sex that everyone is listening to closely at the door, but they can't pick up on all the times that they loudly stage direct each other to sound more like they're having real sex. It works. Brandon leaves and is instantly embraced by his former tormentors because they're like, you're straight. You banged a woman. You're good now. I'm Meanwhile, drunk. What's up, bitches? <laughs> Solves everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drunk. Um, Olive, meanwhile, is so rattled to realize that random dudes are now just simulating sex behind her while she's talking to her crush school mascot, Woodchuck Todd, played by Penn Badgley. That she just, like, leaves the party early. She's like, okay, Brandon got all the social capital. Now I'm the joke, and I don't really want to be at this party anymore. Afterward, her best friend, Rhiannon, calls her to berate her for, quote, throwing her cat at everyone and developing a reputation. And now they're in a fight. So a theme of this movie is that Olive has no friends except for Rhiannon, who is the worst person and it doesn't barely register as, as an actual human, I, yeah, I'm going to say. A, Rhiannon makes the least sense to me of any character in this I movie. warned you guys I was going to bring up Love is Blind. Rhiannon is just Shelby. Yeah. Micah's friend, oh Shelby. God, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, she really is the friend that you're like, she loves me so much and we've been friends forever. Does she treat me like garbage? And you're like, she yes. hates yeah. you and... She definitely hates you. She loves me so much and wants me to be happy that she hates me and everything about me. <laughs> that is that is the beautiful thing about female friendship that comes from, like, teaching women to just accept abuse from other people is that then when you act abusively in female friendships, people are just like, well, I guess that's her way of showing me love and <laughs> we yeah. will continue to be best friends until right? we die. She's like, stop calling me bitch. She's like, okay, shit face. Like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Olive's thing is that she is a terminal people pleaser, which is is funny because it just sits so oddly with her sarcastic, snarky, spunky affect in every other way. But that is the complex mix of traits that is Olive. 
So Olive decides to lean into her new skank reputation by buying a huge collection of expensive-looking corset (laughs) lingerie tops and cutting up a red dress to sew red A's on all of them. So now there's no resale value either. She, I don't, I guess that she just has <laughs> a family credit card. This this was before Poshmark. <laughs> she doesn't seem Claire. to have a job. That's true. That's true. So she, so she starts wearing exclusively lingerie to school, licking spoons seductively in the lunch line, calling Rhiannon's crush Anson big boy right in front of Rhiannon. And just generally making a show of the fact that now she is a harlot. And this gets the attention of Marianne, Sister Christian. They decide, she and her prayer circle, that they need to get through to Olive. Because it is their job to love everyone. Even the whores and the homosexuals. And it's just so hard because they just keep doing it over and over. But it's what they <laughs> have to do. This is such a good, good beautiful scene for Amanda Bynes and her oh, talents. I truly love her in this That movie. line, we need to pray for her, but we also need her to get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it is very Christian. We love all of you. Have fun in hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They end with a rousing go down Moses and they begin. Oh my God. Quest. As a Jew, as a Jew, I had forgotten about this and I was like, what an incredible use of let my people go. Uh, this is truly. I mean, it's a spiritual, wow. right? Like it's not. It, it's a. It's a. It's like a blues, right? Like it's a Louis Armstrong song. It would be yeah. more how we would. Now, now I'm like I should have googled the full history of Go Down Moses, but it, it, it's a spiritual, <laughs> and there are these very like preppy, like white evangelicals. <laughs> They're like, this is our music. Um, so the word starts to get out about what Olive did for Brandon and other quote-unquote undesirable boys in the school start paying her in, like, useless gift cards for some reason. I don't know why she accepts them. (laughs) She demands a specific gift card from her first client, Evan, and then we later find out he gives her one to AutoZone instead, and I'm like, you need to get payment up front for this stuff, Olive. Like, he can't come to you later with $20 on an AutoZone gift card. Yeah, you need you need to learn how to run a business, <laughs> this is a Olive, okay? <laughs> we have some thoughts. But it is and interesting. It's like, does she not want money? Because that's too close to right. transactional, but gift cards to Office Max are fine. <laughs> that is, a, I was very much wondering what the gift cards were about about because I didn't get it. It does seem like maybe it's a gesture to her being uncomfortable with it being so transactional. But at the same time, she seems later offended by the fact that a gift card is is kind of a tawdry gift. Like she's like, now I just have this gift card to Lobster Shack. And I'm like, well, would you have preferred preferred money? Like I that, that maybe you should have asked for money. <laughs> I wonder if it was like a like a paranoia about the ratings board thing. I'm making this up completely, but like the ratings yeah. board would be like, you can't have a PG-13 where she accepts cash for sexual Where ideas. she's like yeah. actually, yeah. where she's like being too close <laughs> yeah. to a prostitute. Yeah. yeah, honestly, I wouldn't be it's surprised. It's gotta be a Bed Bath & Beyond coupon. I feel like gift cards also <laughs> just aren't as much of a thing as they used to be because everything's so digital. So the idea of just constantly... Yeah seeing people handing her a little piece of plastic that says like, like physical gift cards <laughs> yeah, it says like home depot on it it feels like a blast from the past um 
So this is for her to pretend that she hooked up with them so that they're allowed to, like, spread a rumor that, oh, Olive went to second base with me. But Olive's favorite teacher, her very cool, hot English teacher, Mr. Griffith, played by Thomas Hayden Church, gets concerned by her bustier forward wardrobe, and he asks his guidance counselor wife, Mrs. Griffith, played by Lisa Kudrow, to intervene, while also repeatedly trying to grope his wife at their workplace, because, as we should understand, he's a very good and loving husband. (laughs) Mrs. Griffith does not listen to Olive when Olive tries to confide in her about her lie. And instead, she just, like, throws condoms at her. And she's like, don't fuck without a rubber. Good luck out there. After this, Olive sees Micah, Marianne's Christian boyfriend, who is a fourth-year senior. He is in tears. And after he leaves, Marianne informs Olive, also through tears, that his parents are getting divorced and his reputation is going to be ruined in the church. And so Olive comforts her, which makes Marianne think that she has converted Olive. Because if you're nice to someone, it's because you're a Christian. And also, if you're horrible to someone, it's because you're a Christian. And Marianne is like, I did it. I got through to you. Let's be friends. This ends very abruptly after less than a day when Micah goes to the hospital and learns he has chlamydia. And he accuses Olive of giving him chlamydia in order to protect his real sex partner, drumroll please, Mrs. Griffith, the guidance counselor. (laughs) Olive happens upon Mrs. Griffith mid-breakdown because... Micah has called to to let her know what happened and to say that he just wants to go public with their relationship, no matter what the president of the Americas has to say about it, because he loves her. And Mrs. Griffith is like, oh, my God, I'm about to lose everything. So she confesses in this emotional breakdown state to Olive and apologizes and is like, it's okay. I'm going to tell everyone that it's not you. It was me. And I'll just lose my job and everything. And that's fine. That's totally fine. And then she she wipes away tears. And so Miss Fixer Olive, as is clearly Mrs. Griffith's hope, (laughs) takes pity on this grown adult who slept with a student and also her teacher, who she doesn't want to have to get divorced. She's like, that would be so hard for Mr. Griffith to get divorced, so I will just let everyone think that I gave someone chlamydia. She's like, I'll take the blame. Now she's truly an outcast. She gave the top Christian at the school's boyfriend chlamydia through illicit sex. She's got no one left. Rhiannon has joined the Christian protesters with signs like calling her a slut. Wild heel turn. (laughs) I guess she did hate her the whole time. She really did. And then they like make up at the end. So I don't know. She is eating lunch alone. No one's even trying to actually ask her out and possibly actually have sex with her so she's just like alone all the time she tries to learn about christianity by briefly skimming the bible and then talking to a pastor who ends up being marianne's dad there's no safe place for her i love imagining a world in which fred armison was amanda Bynes, <laughs> his father <laughs> and a pastor yeah yeah it was quite a when i remembered that fred armison was in that role i laughed and laughed Yeah, I truly had forgotten, and it was delightful. But then Rhiannon's longtime crush, Anson, approaches Olive and asks her out. They go to the lobster shack. It's a real date. She's, like, so excited. Finally, a guy is actually paying attention to her. 
But when they sit down for dinner, she realizes that Rhiannon is there with her family. And Alva's like, oh my God, she's been in love with you forever. I shouldn't be here with you. I have to go. So she leaves abruptly. Anson follows her and offers her a Home Depot gift card for her services. At which point she realizes for the first time that it was never a real date. Also, she realizes that he thinks she actually has sex for the gift cards. And now he is expecting those services. He tries to force himself on her in the parking lot. And so she's just, like, emotionally devastated. And also she has to fight this guy off physically in the parking lot of a lobster shack. It's a low, it's a low point for Olive. But then, who should turn up? But Woodchuck Todd, who works at Lobster Shack, who has witnessed her fighting Anson off and sees that she's very upset, and he drives her home, and she tells him the truth about the rumors. And he's like, yeah, I never believed those anyway. I don't believe what people say. And, you know, you remember you did the same thing for me when we were in middle school and at a party, we were playing Seven Minutes in Heaven, and I wasn't ready to kiss someone yet. And so you you lied for me and you let everyone believe that we had kissed in, in Melody Bostick's bedroom. And so I know, I know that that's the kind of person you are. And then she learns that his actual first kiss was Rhiannon betrayal because Rhiannon knew about all his crush on him. I can't believe that, that this movie ends with a sort of tentative <laughs> detente between Rhiannon and Olive. Cause I think she should just fully burn that bridge. I agree. Todd then reveals that he's interested in her and he asks if he can kiss her if he promises not to tell anyone. And she's like, no, I'm too much of a mess. I have to get my life in order before I can kiss the man of my dreams. So now it's time for Olive to try to fix her reputation. She starts by trying to get the guys she's helped to confess the truth. But Brandon has run away from home and Micah has been like sent to conversion to celibacy camp with his grandparents in Florida. And the other guys just don't want to lose the sexual capital they've gained. They're like, I paid you so that people would think that you hooked up with me and I want to keep that. Mrs. Griffith basically tells her, well, you fucked up by agreeing to take the blame, but you just have to live with that. And like, no one would, no one would believe you anyway. So Olive runs to Mr. Griffith and tells him everything, immediately ending his marriage, which she feels very guilty for, for some reason. Apparently the most guilty about this, like telling the truth about a deeply inappropriate relationship between a guidance counselor and a high school student. In Micah's defense, he's what, 21, 22 He's legal. She keeps stressing that. <laughs> no. He's going no, He's going to be 21 in eight months. Yeah. In other words, I, I, he's I said 20. deeply inappropriate rather rather than um, statutory oh, no, rape no. for that reason. But uh, it's, I just love how Lisa Kudrow keeps stressing that like it makes a difference. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Olive should feel bad about ending this marriage or revealing this. Yeah. Really she, inappropriate and like abusive power dynamic. She ends up saying that her biggest regret is ending a marriage with her true words. And I'm not sure what that kind of lesson is exactly, (laughs) but I think that she probably should have told more people faster about what was going on with Mrs. Griffith. And instead she's like, maybe I should never have told anyone. Um, But at this point, Mr. Griffith just 
I guess, divorces Mrs. Griffith by giving her the silent treatment. And meanwhile, Olive resorts to her final plan to restore her reputation. She and Todd plan a big musical number for the next pep rally, where Olive emerges from his wheelbarrow of wood, and they do a big song and dance together to the song Knock on Wood. And she ends by advertising her webcam live stream and hints that she and Todd will hook up on camera. <laughs> so very OnlyFans, honestly. It's pre-shed. Yeah, time, frankly. But the webcam, uh, of course, the live stream is just her telling the truth about what happened, the lie that she told and how it spun out of control. And as she's wrapping up and, and saying that movies like The Scarlet Letter never tell you how shitty it feels to be an outcast, which I think is actually sort of entirely what it's about. There's music from outside. It's Todd holding up speakers, playing Don't You Forget About Me. She finishes her webcast, runs downstairs, and they ride off together on a riding mower, fists in the air. Just like seven 80s movies references in one, one vignette. Love it. And that's that's the end. On that note, let's take a quick break and we will be right back to talk about the source material that inspired this movie and all, all of our many, many thoughts about it. Can you keep up? I like I am so glad that it's finally warming up. And it also means that I just want to have fun this summer and I don't want to be worrying about meal prep. And luckily, I can do something about that with Factor, especially because they have so many meal options like Protein Plus, Keto, Vegetarian, something for every diet. Their fresh, never frozen meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Make your whole day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. I love having a few factor meals just sitting in my fridge, especially because I work from home. It's so nice to finish up a taping and not have to figure out what to cook myself. Just look in my fridge and be like, oh, in two minutes, I can be eating mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice or tomato basil chicken risotto or Santa Fe style green chili beef skillet. And they always have a nice like vegetable side. It feels well-balanced. I feel full after, and it's not a headache at all. Head to factormeals.com slash LTSI50 and use code LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code LTSI50 at factormeals.com slash LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Oh, I'm so happy the weather is finally turning. If you, like me, have been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune, then Quince is for you. You can build up a lineup of timeless pieces that will keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year. Like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, 
timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part, all Quinn's items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quinn's cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings right on to you. And Quinn's only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, as well as premium fabrics and finishes. I love Quince for all these staples. I mean, linen is my favorite summer fabric. They have so many amazing linen staples. I also found my new go-to like summer running around to the playground in the coffee shop bag. It's the pebbled Italian leather front sling bag. I can just fit a wallet and my phone and my AirPods in it, maybe some lip balm. Absolutely perfect. I'm so obsessed with it. And the price was exactly what I wanted to. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash LTSI for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash L-T-S-I. And we're back. So we've referenced this a couple of times, but I think we have to start as we like to when, as they usually are, a teen rom-com is based on a classic work of literature by just like talking a little bit about that classic work of literature because EZA is a modernization, loosely, loose inspirational basis <laughs> Um, from Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850 novel, The Scarlet Letter, which is set in 1640s Puritan Boston. This is obviously very explicit in the movie. Olive's English class is studying the novel. Olive specifically says, like, isn't that always the way the books you read in class always seem to have some connection to whatever angsty adolescent drama is going on? I love the explicit nod. They're like, yes, we know what we're doing. You know what we're doing. We're all just going to be real honest about what we're doing here. And we have self-awareness. Yeah, they didn't want us to miss to miss the parallel. And also, it wouldn't make sense for her to literally put A's on her clothing without some sort of literary inspiration. <laughs> no, I mean, I'll have to admit, I'll just say this up front. When I had to read The Scarlet Letter in high school, it was like the one book that I very much remember grabbing and throwing across the room because I hated reading it. <laughs> Not even so much the story, but just the way it was written. It's it, Hawthorne wrote in a way that I could not read as yeah. a kid. And actually, I don't, I don't even think I could read it now. I found him so frustrating, but it has been a sore spot in my life of like the author I quit on. Yeah. He is the author that I quit on. You're like, fuck you, Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like American... Studying American literature in high school is very tough because a lot of the great American novels that are short enough to read, and like not Moby Dick, you know, but Hawthorne, James Fenimore Cooper, are so difficult to read and kind of frustrating and boring at times. And you're almost like, would we even still read these if we did, if we had more American literature to study from this? Such time a good period? point. You're like, I guess we've got. <laughs> We've got Last of the Mohicans. Let's make them read that. <laughs> Which yeah. I think was the book that no, I threw across point. the room. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's such a good point. But actually, now that we're thinking about it, I like that this is the source material that this movie is drawing from because this is an American story. Like, America was founded by angry religious people who are like, we judge everyone we can't live around you. We have to form our own community. Like we were founded by people who, who 
place like religion above almost everything, being nice, being a member of your community. You know, like we having to come over here and form a new community. And Emma isn't so much the story of America, you know, Emma being in Clueless. Emma is like a different type of lifestyle and genteel and cards. And we didn't really have that life in the same extent here, that culture. But like, this is us. Like the root of America is judgy, whispery people being like, you're a whore. Right? No. I'm gonna burn it's you at the so, stake. No, it's <laughs> so it's so true. <laughs> yeah. And like Nathan Nathaniel Hawthorne's history as like a big critic of Puritan culture makes his writing the perfect source material for this movie, which is critiquing judgy, destructive right wing Christianity in big part. Like Nathaniel Hawthorne's great great grandfather, John Hawthorne. He added a W into his name to distance himself oh. from his his forebears, apparently. Um, his great-great-grandfather was one of the judges who oversaw the Salem witch so trials. So you can see why he so, might want to distance yeah. himself from that. <laughs> he, and why he had quite a personal connection to, like, the destructive nature yeah. of I mean, religious the groups. Scarlet Letter <laughs> is, um, it's this, it's a romance, right? It's this sort of, like, not incredibly... Um, gritty realistic novel but it's very much just this this exploration of this one question for him this of of what it means to people to be to have their sexuality like policed in this way to to like undergo that kind of moral surveillance and shaming that that we see in Hester Prynne and it's turned into this sort of like almost ludicrous aestheticized experience that they also play up by talking so much about the terrible Demi Moore movie adaptation. (laughs) But, like, it's it doesn't seem like the most realistic situation, but he's really just exploring the depths of of that kind of social shunning. And maybe we should just give a super basic outline of The Scarlet Letter if you did not study English in America because I think we all had to read it. It's like one of the most universally <laughs> high school studied in high school texts. Um, Hester Prynne is a beautiful young woman who gives birth to a daughter named Pearl, but she's not married. Her husband is believed to have been lost at sea. The father is unknown. And so she is punished with public shaming, which is lifelong. She ha- is forced to wear a scarlet A on her clothing forever but she refuses to name the father of her child. And so over the years, she lives in poverty. She's single, a single mother. She makes a living from needlework. And her daughter is also shunned. No one will let their children play with Pearl. Meanwhile, her missing husband has reappeared under an assumed name, and he makes it his life's mission to find the man who impregnated his wife and evaded responsibility for her downfall. And he ultimately begins to suspect Arthur Dimsdale, the minister, is the father of Pearl. And Arthur Dimsdale has been getting sicker and sicker over the years. And it seems that his health is failing because he's consumed by guilt. Ultimately, Hester tries to convince Arthur to leave with her and start a new life. But instead, he publicly confesses that he is the father of Pearl. And then he immediately dies in Hester's arms. (laughs) And Hester lives the rest of her life uh, alone, but when she dies, she's buried near him. So it is, in a weird way, a love story between Hester and Arthur Dinsdale, a very fucked up love story. And I think that is one of the threads of the novel is like, could, you know, 
could this love have been have had a different trajectory if there wasn't so much shame on both of them like if he had been found out the consequences would have been enormous and so they they were never able to have their love kind of lived in a daily way so that's the scarlet letter and obviously it's not this isn't like the plot of easy a right but it is the inspiration more for how that kind of sexual surveillance and shaming could play out in a modern context. And I think you're completely on point, Amy, that like the way that we think about sex in American culture is st- we we still talk about it as puritanical. That's like we're still we're still it's all this through line from our founders that we've always had this very fraught relationship with sex throughout our our nation's history. And it's interesting right now. I'm asking myself, like, if Nathaniel Hawthorne had been born today, would he be wanting to work in like satirical, angry comedies as well? Like, maybe <laughs> that just wasn't a format that existed. He couldn't do a satirical teen movie when he wrote The Scarlet Letter. <laughs> but like, the idea of imagining that book feeling as shocking at it at the time, you know, I want to I want to make that book feel fresh again. I think in my soul because I think of it as just mm-hmm. this musty thing. But it's. When he wrote it, he was legitimately mad. And I feel like that anger comes across in this remake of it. And yeah. it makes me respect the anger that he must have felt to write that book in the first place. Because I think what I never got about that book when I was little either was like that Nathaniel Hawthorne wasn't judging Hester. I think when I read that as a kid, I was like, why is this guy so mean to her? Because he was describing how the world was. I mean, we're still just like depiction is not endorsement. A thing I feel like I have to remind myself all the time because it's really easy to forget about that. It's also hard when you're reading something that is a period piece and you're so far removed from that initial social context. So it, it becomes, and especially in high school, I think it sometimes becomes hard to decipher like what is satire or criticism and what is like describing the world as it is and how you think it should be. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that is why media criticism and media literacy and uh, is so important, right? Yeah. And I, I think that what we're talking about is like exactly why The Scarlet Letter is this great thematic forebear to EZA. Like they took the pieces of it that did still feel fresh in 2010 and repackaged some of those things. And you can sort of like see that through line from the puritanical culture of the 1600s to where we were just 13 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And high school is such a perfect setting because it is it is like being in one of those first early New England settlement towns. It's small. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's up in everybody's business. You can't avoid everyone. It's gossipy. And it is a time of like heightened moralism because everybody's doing things for the first time and everything feels like such a big deal. Yeah, that's that's completely true. And I, I think that the way that the social shaming played out in The Scarlet Letter felt a little bit, it's hard to understand as modern adults that she had to wear this A and be shamed forever in this town. But like, so just leave, go somewhere else. But teenagers don't have that. They have a high school that is small where everyone knows everything. And <laughs> they are experiencing that that small town social pressure in a way that a lot of adults are able to evade in modern life except now with the internet, you know, we're all 
we're all wearing the Scarlet A all the time. Which I also (laughs) think is such an important part of this movie is that this was made in a moment where I think adults were really starting to grapple with the ways that teenagers were utilizing social media and instant texting. And this was like when smartphones were kind of first going mainstream. And you see that the way that news travels within the small town of the high school is not just people whispering in each other's ears, but people sending emails and getting it on their Blackberries or calling or sending texts or posting on Facebook. Um, And you can feel the anxiety about like, oh, these teenagers are surveilling themselves. They're documenting themselves. What does this mean for the future? And it's it's funny to look back from the vantage point of now when you're like, oh, this was nothing. Yeah, but like, you're right. I was watching the texting scenes thinking, man, they're texting all of this out using T9. I remember how hard that was. They're having to text to each other in, yeah, in short. When you're in high school, you just, you <laughs> you learn. Yeah. For, but yeah, there's even that scene where Thomas Hayden Church as the, as the teacher is like, yeah. why do you guys think people need to know if you bought a Coke Zero? Yeah. And, and Emma Stone just like, her response of like, he bought a Coke Zero. I mean, her sarcasm that runs through the whole movie is wonderful. But yeah, there's that little touch of like, yeah, hey, he you says, kids, this is I bad. wrote down this quote because I loved it so much. He says, Olive says, when do teachers become privy to idle adolescent gossip? And he says, that would be when everyone is putting everything up on Facebook. I don't know what your generation's fascination is with documenting your every thought, but I can assure you they're not all diamonds. <laughs> Which is, like, that part made me laugh so hard because, obviously, Thomas Hayden Church's generation is now the generation that is most on Facebook. (laughs) And it's like, it's not that our generation is uniquely fascinated with it. We were just the early adopters because we we were young and still learning the world when this new technology came out. That's how it works. But then it's like, 13 years later, he's definitely on Facebook posting about, like, the latest (laughs) recipe he tried from the New York Times. And... (laughs) You know, Olive's generation is on Instagram and the new generation is on TikTok. Um, And also, I'm like, why were you reading your students' Facebook pages? (laughs) It's a whole other question. (laughs) question. I did sort of like, though, that all the teachers in this movie let the veil slip a little bit and are like, I actually hate some of my students and I think some of you are stupid. Like, they're not the, like, endlessly benevolent, kind teachers. But he's like, I, I, you know, I was really glad that you called Nina a name. And I will deny it. Yeah. But it was kind of nice. I don't know what it is about it, her. It makes you feel I a little bit her. like, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that is um, that is a, a classic approach of teen comedies, which is really effective, is the, the teacher who's in real life, you would be like, this person is way too over-friendly with their students. They're revealing too much. They're getting too personal. But... What it does for a teenage audience, I think, is kind of reveal the ways in which our teachers are human like us and they don't have it all figured Mm -hmm. out. And some of them are, you know, consumed with sex and some of them are secretly judging us (laughs) and some of them are, you know, really just like going through their own stuff and that's really exemplified in different ways in Mr. and Mrs. Griffiths in this movie. Right. It's like, if you don't get out of this small town, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. You you can't escape it if you're still here. Yeah. Oh my God. 
So, but that actually touches on a thing that I really like about this movie, which is that it's untidy. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Like this movie doesn't end with Olive fixing everything. She doesn't actually go and round and try to fix their marriage. Or like, what if you talked it out or anything? She she lets messy things stay kind of messy. Because I, I feel like in a lot of these movies, girls have the weight on their shoulders to reconcile everything. Well, if I get to be with my boyfriend at the end, I must heal this fight over here and make sure this person's okay and check mm-hmm. up on everyone. She doesn't do that. She's like, well, Brandon's gone. Bye. Peace. Like... Yeah, uh, she sends their marriage one is screwed text. Up. It's like I'm sorry for lying to you, and she apologizes to Mr. Griffith on the live stream. But that, yeah, that's kind of it. Yeah, she kind of lets it dangle, and I appreciate that because to me that feels more f- reasonable and fair to her. You don't have to be the main character of everybody's story. Yeah, if, yeah, mm-hmm. I I almost felt like she took on too much responsibility, and that's kind of her downfall as a character that she. She wants to fix everything. She wants to help people. She wants to please people. Like, she's also always even pretending, for example, that she likes Rhiannon when she clearly doesn't. Like, she doesn't want to tell Rhiannon, I don't want to spend the weekend camping with your family. She's like, I can't. And when she becomes friends briefly with Marianne, she's laughing along with Marianne's jokes that she thinks are dumb or even offensive. Like, she is a people pleaser to a fault. Like, she makes herself into kind of a bad person in order to seem like the kind of person that whoever she's talking to wants to be. And so, yeah, the movie is more about her on that journey to not pleasing and not fixing. And instead just being like, here's a trail of destruction, but that's life. I feel like that is resonant for teenagers where you kind of, as you age, you're like, oh, it's not always the kind or just thing to do to just make someone feel comfortable in the moment. Like drawing boundaries is actually a great way to have honest and real relationships, romantic, friendship, whatever. And I think that is definitely a lesson that her character has to learn in this movie. Yeah. It's a lifelong lesson. Yeah, it's a good lesson. (laughs) Should we talk a little bit more about the kind of controlling and regulation of teen girl sexuality that the movie is exploring that feels pretty, pretty central to this movie? Obviously, the controlling of women and surveillance of women's sexuality is very central to the Scarlet Letter. Yeah. I feel like an interesting twist in Easy A, which is a good modernization, is that in Hawthorne, it's that men can evade detection, right? Like, no one can prove that Mm -hmm. Dimsdale is the father. But in Easy A, it's that men and boys actually gain from it. They gain social capital. They they are, like, taking it away from women. If you have sex as a woman or a girl, you're giving up your social value, and men are, like— being handed it and taking it transaction. on yeah which i thought was pretty accurate to how things <laughs> came to be by yeah. 2010 and the the sexual uh rankings and marketplace that teenagers are navigating that's for sure true and i appreciate how the movie gets that point across without hitting you over the head with it like there's that scene when she goes to one of the nerds and she's like hey, I need you to come clean. And he's like, no, I've hooked up with two girls since then. And it gets that point across there. But I'm glad that this movie didn't have to squeeze in like the fantasy montage where he like shows up at school the next day and everyone's like, (laughs) hey, buddy. It plays it in a way where like it's there, but it's not cartoonish and it feels more real. And it gets in the idea that 
not all nice nerds, quote unquote, nice guys are chivalrous. They're as dickish as everybody else. They're as bad as Anton. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can you can be a real dick in any social group in this movie. And yeah. I do appreciate that because that is and true. And it is taking like is another true. 80s, you know, era teen comedy trope of like Revenge of the Nerds and like looking at it from the girl's perspective, which is like the nerds have taken or purchased your sexual capital for themselves and... What are you left with except for the shitty gift card, which I appreciate. Exactly. And did y'all cackle when they were when she was listing off the nerds who paid her? And you can hear that like Will Gluck and Burt Royal are definitely buddies with like Chris Lord, uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord that have just called them out. This nerd, <laughs> Phil Lord, this nerd, Chris Miller. It's like they were just, I think, beginning to be in the public consciousness. That was a very good stealth bird. Yeah. They're like, oh yeah, we named a character after you. It's an homage. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's such like a, a film critic thing to immediately clock. Oh my God. To. Yeah. I did. I did not even clock. That. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for pointing that out. Oh, it just made me happy. Yeah. I like the fantasy world where everybody who makes movies is friends with everybody else who makes movies. Yeah. Or they like secretly have beef with each other and you like can't tell which. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, what if it was hostile? <laughs> Phil Lord, I know what you were like. <laughs> uh, another thing about the way that it's explored in Easy A is this like perverse pressure to also not be a virgin that like teenage girls are expected to be both sexual and also pure, which I mean, very Britney Spears. Like we all encountered this pressure from both sides and Olive gets kind of swept mm-hmm. up in it. Like Rhiannon is initially so jealous that Olive had sex before her. It makes Olive seem like so grown up and mature and cool. But then once she has sex with the second person, she's a social liability. She's throwing her cat about. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, she did make like an enormous show, like of basically semi-publicly having sex with someone, which would be probably a little bit shocking. But it's so fast. It's like you have sex once and it's like, oh, my God, like, you're so cool. I'm in love with you. You're my best friend. And then you have sex with two people and it's like, gross. You're a slut. Yeah, that yeah well, that, that is constantly the thing that young women, um, certainly in 2010, were expected to navigate, like perform sexuality enough. Make it clear that you're desirable. You're someone that people want to have sex with, but also perform sexuality in the right way where you're still withholding most of it. And it's like this, this delicate dance. And there are so many ways that you can fuck it up. Yeah. And this is, I I think we're right at like the nadir-ish coming out of the nadir of when like this generation of young actresses and women were like completely fucked. I mean, this is Amanda Bynes' last movie. She stops acting after this. And one of the first reactions people even have to Emma Stone being so great in this movie is, oh, good, we've got a new Lindsay Lohan because that one's getting too much. We don't want to handle that Lindsay that we broke as a culture. So we'll just take this shiny new redhead. And she's also really talented, which she is legitimately. But they they set up like a hostility Lohan and Amanda Bynes and like the tragedy of that generation of young, of young girl stars who like by the time they reached their early 20s were, yeah, essentially mocked, destroyed, and, like, health, mental health consequences that are still playing out now. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, Britney Spears, all of it. That's such a really astute point because 
they basically are doing the same thing with all it with with Olive and with Emma Stone. That previous micro generation, you know, like Lindsay and Amanda Bynes and Brittany, was supposed to toe that that line, walk that tightrope, and then they they didn't. Like they started getting too much, too many public drinking sessions, too much sex, and they were discarded. And now they're like, well, here's Olive. She's being shamed for having sex, which is wrong. But don't worry, she's not having sex. And she's not that kind of girl. Which is this, this is weird, something like, that way they, they almost try to have attention. it both ways. Yeah, they don't actually want their main character to be someone who sleeps with a lot of guys. I love that you noted this, Claire, because it was something that I think didn't really strike me when I was first watching this movie when it came out. But something, a dynamic that felt so present to me in the rewatch. Like, there was this subtle... Like, you could tell the movie felt it was important and felt relieved that Olive wasn't actually a slut. She didn't actually have sex. And and the way they it, talk yeah, about they women sort of, who do is still very shady. Like, her own mom is like, oh, yeah, I slept around a lot as a young woman because I had no self-respect. But then, don't worry, I met your father, and now I have self-respect and monogamy. And... Like, so there is this way, and even Olive is like, oh, I'm not that kind of girl. There's this, this still this very stigmatizing way that actually having sex is spoken about. And Todd being like, well, of course I wouldn't believe that you are going around having <laughs> sex with all these people. And I understand that part of that is meant to be that, he like, really sees her. Todd really sees her. He understands that he, that she goes out of her way to help people in this way. He can read between the lines. Um, but I do feel like maybe... Some of this comes from the fact that this movie is is written and directed by a man. Like, this was not a—a a, a girl's experiences are central, but there were no women involved in the, in the writing or directing of this movie. And I think that, like, in some of these dynamics that are painted with, like, a little bit too broad of a brush, you kind of can see that, like, lack of personal experience behind it. Yeah, like, I, it makes me wonder what would have happened— if there was a version of this story where she actually did have sex that first weekend and then yes. the rumor started mm-hmm. and then she was like, well, my my reputation is ruined in this weird way and it's not fair, but this whole town is a bunch of hypocrites and I'm going to show you up by continuing to lie or something. And you, I mean, I yeah. love this movie, but I'm curious about that version that too. That seems like, uh, not that lots of girls don't suffer from completely false rumors about their sexual activity. That's a very real thing. But also that is a very common story that's like, you have sex, people find out, you're like, well, I'm already seen as, like, a slut and, like, I don't have any value because of that, so I might as well actually do the bad behavior that I'm being accused of and lean into it. And that I do wonder if, like, like you were referencing earlier about the gift cards, if ratings boards also play into this, like, you're making a teen movie, should they really mm-hmm. actually be having sex, which is so funny because it's like making a whole movie to critique that kind of puritanical judgment that then is like bound to the same, to those very puritanical standards that are like, well, we can't actually go there. And I noticed that in in some of the reviews that that was commented, like almost applauded for like being a sexless sex comedy. They're like, you did it. You nailed Finally, it. Finally. That's what we've all You been. talked about sex, but like no one was actually having sex, especially not a girl. Right? Thank God. And I think they fold it in ways where it becomes a fun part of the idea. Like when they're faking having sex at the party, 
it feels like part of the joke is nobody actually has any idea what real yeah. sex is. Like they've seen porn, maybe they think it's loud. You scream. They're making it all up. And not just the two people in the bedroom, but it sounds like everybody in the hallway is sort of, I don't quite know exactly either, but they're also knowledgeable, quote unquote, about something they really don't know about. And so I appreciate that part of the sexlessness of it a lot. And I am glad that there's not like, I mean, this movie would be weird if it did some of that five years earlier teen film nudity, where just there always had to be like a couple pairs of breasts. Yeah. I mean, even yeah, we in the didn't 80s. Like, we didn't need yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need any breasts. Nobody's breasts. Like, it's kind of nice that there are no breasts. Yeah, I, I will say I, mean, I, I, agree. I felt a bit, a bit relieved by that. But just because like it can get really tiring to just be constantly presented with like bouncing breasts as if I'm supposed to like <laughs> find those inherently entertaining in some way. Um, but this is yeah. this is not a movie for teenage boys, I don't think. No, I wish we could figure out how to make a movie like this where teenage boys would feel like they could watch yeah. it. You know, that I feel like boys, it's just this ingrained stereotype that I want to think we're breaking where boys are like, this is not for me and I refuse to go. Because I, wouldn't they like this? I think they would like this. But then my boyfriend cries at the notebook. What do I know? Yeah, no, I know. Like when you date people who like rom-coms, it's like, you lose your sense of what the common man on the street is is thinking. But Easy A is, it does seem to me, in that same genre of high school music movie as, like, Super Bad, which is a boy's movie. Like, it it's trying to explore the real, like, social pressures and dynamics of a contemporary high school with lots of, like, raunchy humor and kind of, like, revealing some of the, the things that all these high schoolers are like stressing about are are based on like lies or their imagination or you know it's it's part of that whole sort of coming of age thing where teenagers kind of are coming to grips with with their social situation and what the world really is um and and girls watch super bad so i don't see why boys can't watch easy a and it is so funny and clearly they could probably see themselves in like the male characters being like lie about me please i really need to be lied about Mm -hmm. like if that is a real emotion, and if this is a movie, you know, as we said, like written and directed by two guys, if they know that that is real and put this in because it's real, then it's sort of sad that like young guys maybe were shied away from watching it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was made by men. And one of the characters, Brandon, is sort of an author stand in, the screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that character was inspired by his own childhood or high school experiences um not like literally but you know he was exploring his own high school experience through the character of Brandon and so I do think that's why we see such thoughtful although more marginal depictions of what this kind of pressure looks like for the boys in the scenario and 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 especially for a boy who is queer and and closeted and experiencing the bullying that you know was extremely and still is extremely present, but was certainly very, very present um, when the men who made this movie were, were in high school. And so I think that that's the character of Brandon does feel like a full person. And the scene that where they're both faking sex is so, is one of the highlights of the movie. And I think in part because like, yeah, because there is that, that real lived experience behind Brandon. And you almost wonder like why he wrote a movie about 
a straight girl instead of... Because it got made, probably. Because it got made. Right, right. But you see that. It's it's interesting to see that, like, experience sort of snuck in there. Um, And I also think that explains some of the really, like, sharp commentary on how destructive right-wing Christianity can be and sort of the lumping in of, like, the whores and the homosexuals, right? That, like, this criticism and Deviant policing sexuality. of yeah of all of these kinds of sexuality kind of goes part and parcel yeah and and I don't know if you guys have seen Emma Stone's audition no. they have some of her audition stuff no. that's like up online you can watch her auditions and in one of the auditions she's doing a scene with the reader where the reader is voicing the branding character and one of the lines that was in that original draft that got cut is her saying in 10 years everybody's going to want to be you. You're going to be the popular kids. The queer kids are going to have new social capital in 10 years. I'm paraphrasing it now from that point. But that was that was there. And it actually, it, it feels like an optimistic thing that I think has started to become more true. And that's lovely that at least they presaged it. But then when you watch this movie, you do get kind of flashback to a time where even though it's like 13 years ago, it feels like two generations ago in terms of how uncomfortable... Yes. We just assumed everybody in America yeah. was with with queerness. Or I guess when now we're seeing again in states shutting stuff down and, and becoming massively bigoted again. Yeah, there was this time when it was like becoming increasingly accepted in a sort of political like and broader social setting. But the but like high schools were still expected to be very much like hotbeds of this kind of ignorant bigotry i think that like Mm -hmm. 2010 is also when the it gets better project launched so we were in this exact moment that's so interesting of of this concern over you know we're pushing forward gay rights as as fast as we can but what about these kids who are still living in their hometowns and whose lives are miserable and who are ostracized like how do we let them know that there is like going to be a life for them after like that his character falls squarely in that narrative. That's so fascinating, Claire. You're right. It was founded in September 2010, actually, the same month that this movie came out. So they're clearly, yeah, this is picking up on on a larger cultural conversation that was that was happening. You're exactly right. And they're like wise enough even at this moment to know at the beginning that once you get out of high school, you will be fine. Like they even kind of say that in one of their first conversations. You just have to get out of this cloister. Yeah. So there wasn't this idea of like, oh no, you're screwed over forever. That I feel like that character might have had to experience in an '80s movie. It was just sort of like, right? It was yeah. It's just acknowledging this moment of transition. And so much of this movie is in conversation with '80s movies, so that feels very right. Yeah, it's funny because Easy A, in many ways, it feels so concurrent to me, just because it's not as far in the past as a lot of the iconic teen rom-coms. Like, it's a full decade after most of the other ones that made an impression on me. And so sometimes I'm like, wow, this seems really, like, inaccurate. But the reality is just that, like, a lot has happened (laughs) since 2010. (laughs) Like, we had all this progress and then so much backlash in the space of 13 years. Yeah. And so it's wild to look back on that. Now, we should say... The weakness of this movie is kind of the love story, right? Like, I like Woodchuck Todd a lot, but it does sort of just show up 
And then go on. It is not I, central. I don't know if I get enough scenes of it. Yeah. 100%. And the, and the relationship doesn't particularly overcome anything. Like all of a sudden, he's just into her and has been into her. That isn't really challenged. She confesses. They're together. And it feels satisfying in the sense that you're like, these two people are very dreamy. And I definitely had a huge crush on Penn Badgley at the time. And he is, he really works in this role. But yeah, it's like, it feels almost ancillary, even though so much of this is movie is coded as a teen rom-com. Exactly. And I like how his character is constructed to kind of talk about this film, that he is the mascot who can't be the blue devil anymore because the Christians are taking <laughs> over everything. And when he's in the woodchuck, he keeps falling on his face. Or I like that he has a job at the lobster shack where he has to wear a lobster hat and sing really dorky lobster songs because it it lets you know that this is a guy who does what he wants. He doesn't care that much what people think, that he ha- he isn't as 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 fixated on public coolness as everyone else. He's just like, I wear a dorky hat. It's cool. I'm ripped. It's fine. Yeah. yeah, and how it actually ultimately benefits him. Like, he's not the the king of the school, but he seems well-liked and accepted because he is not uncomfortable with himself or, like, constantly trying to cater to people. It's just like, that's just who you're, Woodchuck Todd, if you're cool with that, then, like, everyone's happy. Um yeah, if you can go around allowing yourself to be called Woodchuck Todd, you're probably exactly. fine. <laughs> but I have to say, even though her other date guy, Anson. Anson, even though Anson does turn out to suck, when he asks her out and he starts making jokes about Sylvia Plath, I was like, he's not a dummy, actually. He's not just like, oh, most idiot, frat, football guy. Yeah, toots. And she's not dumb enough to be like, okay, I'll go on a date with an idiot. He is charming. The way he asks her out is at least cute. And it shows a sense of humor. Which does make his ultimate betrayal really devastating. Like that lands because they do, in a very short period of time, present him as like a viable option. Oh, maybe this guy, yeah, is a viable option. Maybe he's worthy of her. Maybe he he sees her. Um, And then... Yeah. To have that be met with like an attempted yeah. sexual assault. Which is actually is, is what it's very... like to date as a straight woman a lot of the time. You're yeah. not like, oh, I'll go on a date <laughs> with this disgusting knuckle dragger. You're like, oh, this guy seems smart. He seems interesting. He seems funny. And then when he treats you like garbage, it's, you're like, well, what am I supposed to pick guys based on that? <laughs> like, I thought I was doing a good job. <laughs> right. And I feel like women are tasked with, not only like regulating their own sexuality, but regulating mm-hmm. the sexuality of their potential male partners. So it's like all on all on you as a straight woman. Like you have to suss out who's going to be a threat, who's going to be genuine, and then there is like a sense of shame when you when you don't choose right. Um, and I think that this movie portrays that in that like truncated period of time really ably. Well, so then the best couple award. Clearly goes to Stanley Tucci and Patricia Clarkson, oh, yeah. right? I mean, oh, yeah. I think that we all watch that movie and we're like, that's the kind of parent I'm going to be one day, right? <laughs> my my partner and I are going to be so just like constantly doing a comedy so routine cool. for our kids who adore us. And they adore us so much they don't have any other friends, but it's okay because we're the best parents in Ojai, California. <laughs> They're just so chill. They're so chill. They're also, they're just, it's just two really great actors. Yeah. Like, 
Oh man, both of them. They're I so mean, just incredible bodies of work. Great both performances of them. as a couple. They're so in sync, like <laughs> aspirational. The bit when they're trying to think of a bad word that starts with T. T, 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 No, but I appreciate how they are open and empathetic, but they're not like overly smothering, nurturing good either. And there's no subplot in here where it's like, my parents did find out and now they're mad at me or disappointed. Like none of that's here. Yeah, they're like checking in on her. The lack of that feels fresh. And they're supportive. And they're not judgmental, but they're also not, like, stepping in to fight her battles for her. They're... Yeah, or being too squishy yeah. about it. You know, they're mm-hmm. teasing their youngest son for also being adopted, which is Yeah, very that actually was one of the parts that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> so, one of the ways that this movie feels extremely of its time to me is, like, all of the, like, ironic racism and other ironic bigotry, which, like, is... Partially, I think most exemplified in Olive and her parents' respective, like, comedy bits. And, (laughs) like, they are sort of, like, liberal dream goals, right? Like, they're such supportive parents, and, like, they clearly have the right politics. So it's sort of like, well, they can say whatever, right? And so we end up with these weird moments that I feel like hit the ear really badly in 2023. Like, when Olive's dad, Dill jokingly asked their quite young adopted Black son, where are you from originally? And I'm like, we all know this is like a joke about how people ask people of color that. But I'm also like, is it funny for someone to ask their adopted child that? Like, I don't really think so. And part of the humor is like the shock value. And part of it is like, what not it stupid how like people are always asking people of color where they're from. Like, it's a different answer than anyone else. But it's still the expression of it feels like something that would not be done now, if that makes sense. It feels very obama The me. humor is very, very 2010. And, very. And there's a lot of those throwaway comments that I was just like, ooh. Yeah. Um, like when... The Huckleberry Finn stuff. Is yes. I mean, that's a running yeah. theme. <laughs> like, it comes back that, to it at the end. I was just like, ooh, ooh, yeah. ooh. So Olive comments about... She's talking about Huckleberry Finn. And she's like, but no one runs off with a, quote, big hulking black guy. Yeah. Like, that's the Ugh. one work of literature that isn't relevant to teens today. And it's... And then later, when Brandon does run away from home, he ends up moving in with a Black boyfriend, which is described in exactly the same phrasing for comedic effect. Like, oh, he ran off with a big hulking Black guy, is what her friends tell her. And I'm just like, (laughs) this phrasing is just, like, so othering and so dehumanizing and, like, racist. And yet it was clearly seen in the writing of this movie as this, like, perfectly acceptable thing for like funny progressive people to just joke about right that moment of like recognizing recognizing racism and calling it out in a way that's like sarah Mm silverman-ish you know yeah where it's like clangy now yeah it's like we're making we're we're laughing about racism but it's white people laughing about it sort of in a way that speaks to other white people that is still like othering Black people and, like, centering white experience in this way that I don't think a lot of white people had a recognition of at the time. 
And 13 years later, it's like, there's been a lot of conversation about that. It really doesn't sound, sound good. Um, no, I was also super upset by seeing the um, depiction of Evan, oh, yeah. who is the nice guy nerd. I appreciated that part of his character. I think the fact that he was a social outcast and also kind of a dick, I think that worked. But they have his whole character be built around the fact that he feels bad about himself because he is fat and he calls himself, quote, a fat piece of shit. And he's like always like eating ice cream and candy bars. And like emotionally eating. It's like, emotionally, oh, when he feels bad, yeah. he eats a candy bar. Yeah. And that is his and character. That's his whole character. And it just feels like so casually and easily playing into so many weird and harmful tropes about fatness and fat bodies and their lack of desirability and... And as just, like, uncontrollable uh, yeah. appetites and, like... Yeah. Yeah. They're, that part also, again, like, it's the conversation on fat phobia didn't really get going, I think, in the mainstream until so recently. And so that would have been extremely standard. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, they tried to soften that commentary by having Olive say, you know, if you had actually been nice to me and, and asked me out on a date, I maybe I would have gone out with you. But they're still making all of these assumptions in the construction of his character. And yeah, it does just reflect the moment that we were not in, in terms of the cultural conversation about um, fat discrimination, anti-fatness. Yeah. Do you believe her when she says that? That part no. was interesting to me because I be sort honest. of did believe her, but in a way that I was like, I don't know if that says about Olive's character what they think or if it says about Olive what she thinks as a character, which... Oh, you mean you think I, she would have, like, accepted the date but wouldn't have been into him? I think that Olive doesn't know what she wants. I think she's a people pleaser, yeah. like I said. And so she's truly just like, if any guy asked me out, I probably would have said yes because he was nice to me. And that kind of is how she makes a lot of her decisions. Like I was saying before with, like, laughing along with Marianne. Also, when... Rhiannon calls Brandon like a homo. She just is like, yep, he's a homo. And I, like, there is this way in which she will kind of mirror back whatever the person she's talking to wants or is saying. And I do, for that reason, I do see her character saying yes to whoever asked her on a date, basically. Yeah, that's a good point. But there wasn't an indication, like they didn't do anything to back up the idea that she might be excited by Evan asking her out. No, I think the point of that is more yeah. that just like, if a guy was nice to her, she would give him a chance. <laughs> she would say yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask a very naive question as a person who was an A cup all through oh, high school? Oh, me too. Sorry. And has grown into a B. I'm still like, a triple A cup. <laughs> <laughs> that Rihanna is like thrilled to be identified as big tits. Is that a thing or is that what guys think is true? Because I actually genuinely don't know as a person who never got to like take the girls out. I don't, I don't, I, I, I have no I'm idea. I'm more of a, an olive, like just very, like, average to below average um, size breasts. But I have never met a woman who's like, I want the everyone in my social world to be referring to me as big tits. Yeah. Like, I, I think that, that, that really felt a like... a joke that is based on the fact that it is counter to expectation. That, like, we expect Rhiannon yeah. to be offended, and instead she is And she's pleased. like, hell yeah. And, but I do think that kind of speaks to, in 
like obviously Rhiannon's character is like not a real person. Like she is one of the least <laughs> real people in the movie to me. She seems like someone who would be a popular girl, but she only has one friend and she hates her. And like her character just doesn't add up to me. But she there is this thing in high school that I saw I did see with my friends who like euphemistically like matured at a young age or like, I mean, I never did, but like girls with like fuller figures, that's like this, this weird tension of like, they get male attention, which can I like lean into that? Is that a good thing? Like, does this make me desirable? Does this make me adult? But also like they're heavy and they hurt and like I snap my bra strap and like it's degrading. And so I, I, in Rhiannon's comments there, I saw a little bit of that thing where she's trying to negotiate. Like, is it good that I'm seen as someone with big boobs? Maybe. Yeah, I'll take it. But does, it's... I just feel like... It's, in it reality, it's more complicated. Yeah, I think that's a, a very smart reading of it. I feel like it would work better if Re felt more like a real person. Yeah, she doesn't make sense to but me. We just... We get so little from her... She doesn't make any sense to me. So I feel like it was like almost, I didn't even know how to take that because I didn't understand who, who she was. Not, to be frank, none of the, almost none of the social dynamics among the girls at school rang true to me at all. I was like, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, that was, that's, I felt sort of the same. I never know how my, how representative my high school was. Um. So I, I, I always hesitate to judge, but there was a, a, a weird way in which Olive is completely socially isolated that doesn't add up for me. And yet welcomed in every social space. Right. Like, it, that's what I also, mean by Olive it didn't is, like, really... hot. I'm sorry, like, Rihanna and Olive are both hot, skinny, like, wearing fashionable clothes, wearing makeup, looking cute. Wearing heels every day to school. It's unclear and to also, me why they were, like, invisible. They're clearly among the hotter people, girls, at their school. And there's no clear reason why they wouldn't be accepted. And even beyond that, like, you see flashbacks in which, in middle school, which, in my experience, was an extremely fraught, social hierarchy-focused time, they're going to parties with boys at Melody Bostick's house. So I'm like, again, like, what happened? Yeah, what happened? It, it just didn't, it didn't ring true to me. It didn't. Yeah, kissing parties in middle school. I never got invited to those. I was like, they were cool. They were clearly <laughs> cool. Although, I don't know, my, my husband always talks about how in middle school, he hung out, he and his friends hung out with all the girls who got popular in high school and they were, they were left in the dust. <laughs> But I, so maybe these things happen, but like, it's not like he was like, no one talked to him anymore. Like, yeah, there, it seems like there should be a reason that no That's one wants to mean. talk to like, these what? really hot, well-dressed girls at this high school. But also then everyone's like, oh, Olive's at this pop, like popular people party. Of course she's invited. Like it just, it didn't make sense to me. Yeah. I don't know. I was like, this movie was, again, this movie was written <laughs> by a man because I do think that the social dynamics among the male students made a little bit more sense when you saw kind of the specificity but of the students. Maybe who, that's because we are women. And if we were writing a movie, we would be like, this is how guys interact, but we don't actually know. It's true. <sighs> yes, well, I, know. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I do think there's room to say that Emma Stone is so credible and believable as this character 
that it kind of wallpapers over a bunch of these things. Yes. That then when you're like sitting about it afterwards, you're like, hold on. <laughs> oh, but absolutely. She feels she sells so it. real that she excels. She her realness extends over the rest of the movie. Yeah, her character is so, and and the way she plays it is so distinct. Like she's like a theater kid. She doesn't do theater, but the way that she handles a lot of her life is like she's always doing patter. She's always doing like stand-up routines or like improv with her teacher or with her parents. And she she doesn't seem like she doesn't she's not seductive unless she's really playing it up. Like she she does she seems like a little bit awkward in her body a lot of the time. But she's also like so cute and so well put together. And so it creates this really unique blend <laughs> that I think gives a lot of people space to latch on to her. Like, I definitely identified with her because I was like, I was invisible in high totally. school. I wasn't having sex. No one was asking me out. And so then you get to have that that feeling of se- And I was the teacher's pet, totally. So then it's like, what if I got to make out with the hot, hot woodchuck Todd at the end? And that's what you need in a teen rom-com heroine. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, you're like, you need the invisible girl to get to make out with Penn Badgley. Yeah. That's just what we all needed. We all deserved it. <laughs> and I really totally. enjoyed it. <laughs> but I like her specificity. Because if you're going to say, like, list the personality qualities of Olive, I would put funny and smart before I would put nice or victimized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate that. You know, that, like, when things are bullshit, she's not just sitting there like, oh, no. <laughs> she's, she will give it back, yeah. you know? She can be rude back. She fights back. She called she a girl back in the moment. an abominable twat, which yeah. is incredible. <laughs> that was her. That was actually her trampy alter ego. Um, but real Olive oh, right. got punished for that. But no, that's so true. She is both simultaneously such a people pleaser and so caustic and tough, which is a very, it's not a combination that you see in a character very often. Her humor is really front and center, and that is that is very cool to yeah. see in a actually one of the other in most a teen girl iconic character. moments in the movie is when she approaches Rhiannon and Anson after their big fight and like kind of hit flirts with Anson, and then she's like responding to Rhiannon hurling insults after her after her, and she's like, "Ooh, burn!" I love that <laughs> moment. I was like, yeah, that actually that one stuck. I remember that one years later. That. I love paired the way with the that, corset like, her- top. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, she's so cool. Or how her family's whole way of making jokes is just to lean into like extreme positivity in a way that just becomes so demented <laughs> when she's watching Amanda Bynes sharpening pencils and just goes on that whole day. Are you sharpening your pencils? Oh, they're so sharp. Are you still sharpening it? Oh, it's so sharp now. <laughs> and then when she gets like interrupted Ooh, to be called into, called into the office and she's like, oh, what? <laughs> like, I was I was really in my flow. I was I was mocking someone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get why she was nominated for a Golden Globe nominee yeah. for this. She's you know, delightful. Like for actor. Yeah. She's amazing. Should we, before before we wrap up, should we talk about the 80s movie of it all? Yeah. It's not subtle. I think if you watched the movie, <laughs> you probably picked up on the fact that they wanted to work in a lot of 80s movies <laughs> references. That they really love especially the director will gluck is like i love john hughes yeah. i'm obsessed with john hughes i see this movie as a deconstructed 80s movie yeah i will say one of my things with john hughes is there's never been a guy in a john hughes movie that i would personally want to date 
Like, I think Bender uh, from Breakfast Club kind of sucks. I think Ducky is terrible. I think the non-Ducky is also terrible. I think Jake Ryan's a little boring. Like, oh, I've he's never... boring, but I was still yeah, totally boring, but so <laughs> into it. He was so yeah. handsome. Ferris is just a lot of energy. I don't have energy for Ferris. So, like, I yeah, those guys are not my romantic ideal. Yeah. It's true. I don't think that... I think that they are teen rom-coms made by a man. So it's like the focus on of desirability is more on the women. The women are like beautiful oh, and Ali, Ali Sheedy and Molly Ringwald right? are just perfect Molly Ringwald I am I admit mm. I, I was pretty into Emilio Estevez in uh in Breakfast Club but yeah yeah the angry jock <laughs> thing I was yeah. I don't know I was into it even though it's like so not my yeah. type in any actual way but I was just I was like he likes Ali Sheedy so I love him but that um, is a way in which EZA <laughs> carries on the tradition is like this is a teen rom-com but it's actually not about the relationship it's not we don't even really need to flesh the guy out that much he's there maybe he's a stand-in for male desire maybe he's a stand-in for you as a guy watching maybe he's a stand-in for who a, a woman or, or a girl would want watching her with desire but they're really about the girls' emotional journeys for the most part. And and so is Easy A. Like, it's all just about her personally coming to grips with sexuality and what it means for her. And then Todd is just, like, there. And it's, like... And very cute. And cute. Yeah. He, he doesn't seem like a real person to me, but he's very cute. No, but he's <laughs> cute. And he's Penn Badgley, and that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, yeah, but at the end when you see his biceps as they're riding on a, tr- on a lawnmower, I'm like, that's a high school kid? And then you're like, no, he is in his 20s. It's fine. We also get the the whole direct-to-camera, you know, device that's definitely taken um, straight from Ferris. Yeah. And that was like an overt intentional, intentional nod. Yeah. Obviously, the, the boom box... The final Say scene is like joke. seven, like twenty, on yeah, top twenty of each other. things. Yeah. Just like the music is from Breakfast Clubs. There's a Say Anything reference. Yeah, it's just, it's everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. I do appreciate though that she is not healed by him necessarily. That it's not like they kiss in the car on the way home from the lobster restaurant. She's like, I'm going to go good now. You know, I'm going to clear this up for us, baby. She's <laughs> like, let me get my house in order, then we'll talk. Yeah. Though he does help her get the house in order, but at least the or the order of events in her mind is like, I believe this. You get healthy, then you can be with somebody. Totally, and it's a much more like, yeah, like post two thousand mindset on it than we would have seen in an older movie. Um, also, like, it's funny because last week we wa- we watched Ten Things I Hate About You, which also has a rejected kiss in the car scene. But it's it's Patrick Verona refusing to kiss Kat because she's too much of a mess and he doesn't want to take advantage. And 11 years later, it's the girl setting her own boundary and saying, like, I know I'm too much of a mess to do this right now. But in every other way, the scene is, like, basically identical. And I don't know that that was an intentional reference. It's certainly not an 80s movie, which we know the filmmakers were specifically biting, but I do think that that is an interesting 
twist that we had arrived at this place where, yeah, where we're like looking more at at women looking out for their own well-being in that way. And his role is just to kind of accept that with grace and still be there for her. And he can still help her without being like her savior, which is Oh, that's Woodchuck partnership. Todd. Woodchuck Todd. Lobster Woodchuck Todd. <laughs> I feel like that's Blue Devil. That's Todd. a beautiful note for us to end on. And we should rate this movie on a scale of one to 10 pocketfuls of sunshine. I think that's the right choice. Amy, what do you think? I think I'm going to go a little high because, because, kind of like I said at the outset of this, this movie deserves, I think, to be rotated more into the centerpiece. Even if it means having conversations about like the way we talked about race and and sexuality in 2010, I like having those conversations. I'm glad when these movies give us a chance to have those conversations because pretending it didn't happen and we didn't all live through this is not the truth. Uh, so with that in mind, I'm gonna go eight and a half pockets mm. full of sunshine. Love that. I love that. I think that's completely true. And actually, I've loved having this conversation with you because we've been rewatching movies that I have always loved like 10 things I hate about you, which I think is like a perfect movie. And I was like, you know, easy. A never was that for me. It never resonated in the same way. Maybe I was just a little older when it came out. Maybe there are things that just didn't speak to me in the same way, but I feel like you've made a really good case for many of its merits. And so it's definitely recontextualizing it for me. But with that said, I think I'm at like a seven. I think it's a really solid movie with a a lot to talk about, a lot of good performances. But I don't think that it's in my personal like top five rewatch teen comedy. Yeah, I feel like I'm also at a seven, mostly because we are doing this series and I'm like, I gotta... Can't give them all (laughs) tens, you know, even though um, teen rom-coms and rom-coms in general, I just, you know. Maybe it's just not romantic enough for me. If I'm, the more we talk about it, I'm like, I think I just love more, I I want there to be more romance. (laughs) No, I think that's totally part of it for for me too. Um, That, Yeah. yeah, that love story is not really terribly fleshed out. And so that does knock it down to a seven. But I do agree, Amy, that it deserves to get more credit. And like at the time, I remember seeing it and being so delighted by it because like we didn't have, we weren't being offered anything like this at the Mm -hmm. time. And I think that a lot of credit has to go to these filmmakers and to this movie for like trying to tell this kind of story in a moment where the culture wasn't really celebrating these kind of Mm -hmm. movies being made stories uh, about girls, anything that feels felt coded as a rom-com like that wasn't really being rewarded. And so I am super grateful that, that we had this. And I think it suffered like you were saying from that in part that like, we don't talk about it anymore. How much of that is because we don't talk about this kind of movie from this era? Like we talk about yes. our 90s rom-coms, our 80s rom-coms, but it because it's sort of more singular, we don't, and we don't tend to lump it in with the teen movies that are more male-coded. So we just don't talk about it. And there is so much here. There's so much in this movie that's worth talking about. 
Yeah, anyone That's who's listening, true. if uh, you haven't seen this movie or you haven't seen it in a long time, it is on yeah. Netflix, and I highly recommend you go rewatch it. If you want to know how we were all dressing when Emma and I were just graduating from college. <laughs> it was like this, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. No, but that is so true. And I forgot to mention this when we started, but a few years after this movie came out, I did a cover story called Who Killed the Romantic mm. Comedy? Because I realized, I think it was in 2014 when I wrote it. Mm that a romantic comedy hadn't been theatrically released in two years at that oh point in 2014. Mm. Like, absolute death. Like, people were like, you can't be serious. I'm like, I'm serious. You go back and there was at nothing. Wild. Netflix hadn't started making romantic comedies on their own yet. They weren't making much of anything at that point. And they were dead. And I thought that was because of a lot of the reasons that you guys cited at the beginning, that the 2000s romantic comedy was so mean, so self-aware that it didn't buy in anything of the premise. And stuff like... The Awful Truth with Katherine Heigl Ugh. and Gerard Butler, where they're just cruel to each other Horrible. the whole way through, and then they're in love. The like, Ugly Truth is so It destroyed this genre. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so bad. And so you're right. that We don't have a movement in this era to treasure. So I'm glad at least there's this one little random. Yeah. One little random gem that we can take and polish and be like, oh, scrub away that bit a little bit. But <laughs> yes, here we go. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that, and it deserves to be to be taken seriously. And I think that's what we like to do on this show is take things that maybe weren't taken as seriously as we would have liked to at the time and kind of revisit them. So Amy, like truly you've been such a dream guest and you've brought so much to this conversation. I feel like I've learned so much. Can you tell the people where they can find you and all of your work? Oh yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I'm a movie critic. I write for the New York Times. I write for Variety. I just reviewed the new Judy Bloom over there, which I wanted to drill this conversation into because it touches on a lot of stuff, but I saved it because there's so much to talk about here. Uh, yeah, I co-host the podcast Unspooled with Paul Shear, uh, where we go through so many movies every week. We started by going through the entire AFI Top 100 and just looking at all of them because they haven't updated that list since 2008. And really just going through figuring out what to keep. We killed 60 movies from the top 100. <laughs> and now that. we're just rebuilding Brutal. it by going on our own side quests. <laughs> and it's been really fun. The original film had one film directed by a person of color. It was Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing and no films directed by women. Wow. So it's been amazing. So there might be some tweaks to make. Yeah. <laughs> um, ever, some tweaks ever, to make. Oops, and also nothing from like the 2000s besides Lord of the Rings. Oh God. So, yeah, okay, we can do better. Let's talk about <laughs> <laughs> like, isn't that so predictable? We all know what happens at the end. Come on, guys. They throw the <laughs> ring into the mountain. Uh, Amy, thank you again for joining us. Everyone should definitely check out your work. And uh, we hope we hope we can do this again sometime because this was so fun. And on that note, that's it for Love to See It with Emma and Claire. Thanks so much to our wonderful guest, Amy Nicholson. Love to See It is produced by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray and Stitcher. This episode was edited by Talon Stradley. Our theme music is by Tamar Haviv and our art is by Celine Chang. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. If you like the show, please follow us, rate us five stars and leave a review. Maybe go live on, a, on your webcam and just like tell a multi-part story about us. Whatever you can to get the word out. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at clareandemmapod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and TikTok at love to see it pod and Instagram at clareandemmapod. And you can find our newsletter rich text on Substack at clareandemma.substack.com. You can also find me on social media at Emma Lady Rose. And I'm at Claire E. Fallon. We'll be back next week with what movie? <laughs> I'm going to take that oh, again. Shoot. Yeah, what's our next movie? 
We'll be back soon with some Bachelor news and gossip for you. And next week, our next rom-com rewatch spring break edition will be Clueless. Stitcher. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.